This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So the road ahead, very difficult. That's not exactly what you want to hear from any CEO, and especially not the CEO of Tesla, considering the past volatile year. Shares of the company tanking, by the way, on this Friday. Craig Trudell is U.S. Auto's team leader at Bloomberg News. He joins us along with David Kudla. He's CEO and chief investment strategist at Mainstay Capital Management, who back in August told us he was shorting the company, reminding us that, quote, Tesla doesn't own the future That was David's words. And shares of Tesla, by the way, are down more than 18% since that date in August. Both David and Craig joining us on the phone from Detroit. Hey, Craig, let's kick it off with you. You and I talked uh, this morning on Daybreak America's on Bloomberg uh, TV with David Weston. So we've had a few hours to kind of digest this news from Tesla. Um, What are you hearing? What's kind of your further analysis? Well, I think uh, the the bottom line is that this company is sort of in a a, a very strange uh, and ironic predicament where uh, they have a huge wait list of people waiting on the $35,000 version of the Model 3 sedan that Elon Musk promised almost three years ago now that he would be able to deliver. Uh, Now, that might sound like uh, good news um, if you're trying to sell cars, but the problem here is that if Elon Musk sells too many of those, uh, his his profit margins shrink. Uh, Tesla is not, uh, you know, a, a sustainably profitable company. He like he Musk would like to think that they've gotten there and and uh, has suggested as much uh, before today, uh, but but they aren't. And uh, so if if people are patient and willing to wait for their thirty five thousand dollar Model Three, it's potentially trouble for the company. And the other question, uh, the other side of that is that coin is uh, if people aren't willing to wait. Obviously, this is a company that doesn't have an incredibly solid balance sheet. It has almost a billion dollars worth of customer customer deposits. And if if customers flee, that also is not good for the company. So uh, this is uh, this is all sort of helping explain why the, the stock is getting hit so hard today. Right. We call it a predicament, but I'm thinking, David Kudla, you call it, well, you called it. <laughs> You've had some concerns <laughs> on Tesla for a while. So how do you see this news and how does it kind of fit into the scenario that has included concerns on your part when it comes to Tesla? Well, I think it's a... Uh... I think Elon Musk is facing reality, and you know th- this letter was really a, a dose of reality. It it really is an acknowledgement of what Tesla is facing. Unlike you know some of the pronouncements to the press and to the public, and a lot of the hype that we've seen over time. And you know you can forget about you know some of the things that have made headlines, uh, uh, and even the internal problems at the company. Th- these are this is a combination of that and market forces. Uh, as Craig talked about, you know, they're, they need to build a less expensive car. They set out to build a $35,000 Model 3. Um, they're building their cheapest model right now is about $44,000. The average car in the U.S. sells for about 37000 They aren't where they need to be, and 
if they were to sell that car, they wouldn't be making any money. They, I think they had a good strategy in right. the second half of 2018 was to build build cars on the high-margin high side. Uh, now, if they are to move to those less expensive models, uh, they they just won't make the money they need to, and they need cash. So where do we go from here, Craig Trudell? I'm just curious because, you know, you could go back a year, two years. I feel like we could be having a somewhat similar conversation when it comes to folks saying no chance, you know, Elon Musk is going to, you know, survive another year, another six, six months or what have you. But here we are. And, you know, it's hard not to be to some extent impressed by kind of the year over year over growth, year over year growth, excuse me, that we've seen in revenues. Uh, I know it's projected, it looks like to to slow, but it, these are still impressive growth numbers. Craig? Did we lose Craig? Oh, we maybe lost him. So let me put it to you. I can, I da- can take that. Yeah, go ahead, David. So, I mean, aren't you, even though you look at these numbers and say, okay, but th- he could maybe potentially pull this out? So the, the, the third and fourth quarter, and the fourth quarter, they didn't actually meet projections, but the third quarter that was you know, was really magnificent, and and they were able to financially engineer a pretty good profit of $311 million. In that quarter, uh, they were finally able to produce enough cars to meet a lot of demand, Mm -hmm. a lot of pent-up demand over many months and actually a couple of years. Um, But that's not going to continue, and we'll see that as this year rolls out. To continue to grow that demand, they have to have more models coming. They don't have more models coming. They don't have refreshes coming. Uh, They have a Roadster coming, but that's uh, a niche market. And without that, uh, how many cars, what demand will be there? At the same time, there is just a wave of EV models coming into the market this year, next year, the year after. Uh, and, and, you know, we just think the industry is starting to go EV crazy, you know, electrification right. crazy with the amount that's coming in and question what demand will actually be there in a year or two. That's a really good point. Craig Trudell, if you're back with us, uh, just 30 seconds, we just have, you know, the Detroit, the International Auto Show underway. David West and I were talking about this morning. You know, you did see a lot about electric vehicles everywhere. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and so to to David's point, we're we're hearing from Audi, we're hearing from Mercedes. Uh obviously GM is already in this market. Nissan has a newer a new longer range leaf in this market. Uh there's the Jaguar uh E-Pace. Mm-hmm. So uh this is a a, mar- a segment that's really going to heat up. I still think, you know, Tesla has a very strong brand. Yeah. Uh but there is a question of, of whether they can, you know, continue to, to make money at the margins uh, that they that they have been able right. to selling this cheaper car. Right. And worrisome, like I said, when the, the CEO comes out and said the road ahead is pretty difficult. Craig Trudell, thank you. U.S. Autos team leader at Bloomberg News and Dave David Kudla, CEO and chief investment strategist at Mainstay Capital, both on the phone in Detroit. This is Bloomberg. JSC for you and me. So listen, I love this. Transparency and integrity. It's got its own jingle. It trades stocks, and yet uh, it's not quite the financial capital of the world. And yet it is the world's best performing stock market this past year and actually over the last few years. It's a question our Mike Regan asked, found out. He even got a trip out of it. <laughs> Mike Regan is our senior editor and lead blocker, really um, 
um, Bloomberg Markets Live blog. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I did want to point out his story featured in this week's Bloomberg Business Week magazine, and you can catch it on our weekend TV and radio program. Um, fun story. Jason Kelly and I had so much. It was one of our favorite stories this week. How did this come about? <laughs> so, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I my day job basically is writing on the Markets blog here uh, on Bloomberg. And one day I, I was just completely out of ideas. I think my whole team was... Hard to imagine, hard, but yeah, okay, hard, hard to imagine. This was, you know, in uh, October when things were, were kind of quiet. So I, I just... Out of curiosity, I said, well, what's the best performing stock market this year in, in the world? Uh, and we have an easy function that allows you to do that. I looked it up and I said, Jamaica, that's interesting. It's, uh, I didn't realize they had a market. And I started making a joke, well, really, I should probably go down to Jamaica, maybe in January or February, December. Your bosses December. were like, yeah, nice money. Yeah, 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 nice try. So I made that joke a few times. And then I, I think the last time I made it, I said, no, I really should. Because I looked it up. And as you said, for over the past five years... As far as percentage returns, it's like four times the next best market, up up about like 300%. So I was like, why on earth wouldn't I go down here? I mean, I'm a stock market reporter. Right. Why on earth am I not down there right now? And I, I pitched it to the magazine, uh, Joel Weber, and he said, book it. Book it as soon as you can. Let's do it. And you did it and you went down. What did you find? Like, is it anything like the New York Stock Exchange or not even close? No, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, Jamaica's a, an island of about 3 million people. Um, it's a tiny market. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the story, really. You know, uh, the entire market cap uh, of the main index. Now, mind you, this is a uh, index that has 37 stocks in it. Mm-hmm. The entire market cap's about $10 billion. So, like, the comparison I made was it's... The entire market's smaller than Chipotle, right. Mexico. But you know, when you you got to put those numbers in context and realize that in Jamaica, a dollar goes a lot further than it, mm-hmm. it does. I think the minimum wage in Jamaica is something like fifty some dollars a week. Wow. Um, so it, it's a different environment. Yeah, different financial environment. Yeah, they had, there's this great uh, Patwa uh, expression. It, it was originated from a ska song. Uh, uh, in Jamaica in the 60s, uh, and it's, we lickle, but we talawa. And it basically means we're small, but we're fearless. And I, it's such a great, it's such a great expression. It's almost become like a national motto for them. And, it sounds like you embrace the culture. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, everything? I, yeah. Everything? Well, I, I didn't get to the beach. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't get to the beach. I didn't get to really have any. Uh, I, had, I had one rum drink, and it was, a little, it was pretty strong, so I, I left it at that. Well, what's fun in the story is you do talk about this market, and you say it is definitely different from Wall Street. There's no complaints from short sellers. There's no high-frequency traders, no pre-market or after-hours trading, and there's just, as you said, I think a few hours to, to trade. Yeah, three and a half hours to trade, and it's this uh, – really quaint uh, little building on the waterfront, a hundred-year-old building. Uh, it was like a, I think it was a plantation house previously. But um, I, what's fascinating to me is the, the backstory. It, the stock market's uh, success, I think, is a, is a small portion of a much more important and interesting story about the progress Jamaica is making. You actually go back to the bond market. Yeah, yeah. As I as I said, you know, all good stock market stories start in the bond market. Well, explain that because it is interesting. It's, it's certainly a big part of their history here. Right. So Jamaica had a, a, their their own nasty uh, banking crisis in the late '90s, and it almost foreshadowed shadowed the U.S. crisis because it was all about real estate and over aggressive mm-hmm. uh, connections between banks and insurance companies. So they bailed out the, the system then. So they they ratcheted up the debt for that, and then they got hit 
by the global financial crisis, which really crushed the tourism industry and just a global recession was bad for their exports. So all of a sudden they had a government debt that was 145% of of their economy. It's crippling. Which is crippling. And it, and it, it, you know, it almost caused another crisis, but they went to the IMF and they did this very unusual debt restructuring, refinancing, uh, where they did not reduce the principal owed, which was very important to them. They're steadfast about repaying all of it, but they just lowered the rates, extended the duration of the loans, the maturities of the loans, of the bonds. And uh, it's, it's really helping them uh, turn their, turn their uh, situation around. It's a fascinating story, and there's still more to come, so I highly recommend that you check it out. Uh, It is the international cover of Bloomberg Business Week, which is on newsstands now. You can also read the story, Mike's story, at uh, Bloomberg.com. Really, really great read. And who knew? Who knew? Who knew? (laughs) Now you know. i got to try that. Hey, guys, i got to go to Tahiti because I I don't know. Mike Regan, have a good weekend. He's our senior editor, lead blogger at Bloomberg Markets Live blog in our interactive broker studio. Also, tune into the weekend version of Bloomberg Business Week with myself and Jason Kelly tonight at 6 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch it Saturday at 12 noon on Bloomberg Television and really throughout the weekend. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Successful entrepreneur and business owner, respected perfumer. She's now on a second brand, and it's called Joe Loves, which she created back in 2011. I first met Joe Malone last November at Bloomberg Breakaway London, over in London. And then we caught up here in New York just this week where we talked about the environment, we talked about Brexit, and a lot more. Listen up. Tell me about the environment, because I think we are such an, in, an, in an interesting time where there's so many different global macro trends going on around mm. the world, pushback against trade. We're wondering about the global economy in terms of what we're seeing in terms of growth. You play into the consumer space in a big way. What are you seeing? I see the consumer wants to wants to be more than just buying your product. She wants or he wants to live in your world. Um, so it's creating the language. It's it's hearing their voice, but but it's many voices. When I started out 25 years ago, you know, it was kind of one clear voice, but now it's so many. Uh, so you, we have to be, we have to listen to those voices and try and translate that through the product, through the packaging, through the service, entertainment team. There's so many, you know, different boxes to tick now uh, to build a, to, especially to build a global brand as well. That's what I was thinking about, right? How long you've been in this space and how much it's changed, right? Social media is such a bigger component of it. Like, tell me how you kind of balance all of that. So I've been a shopkeeper 25 years this year. (laughs) And and I am a shopkeeper and I love love that title. But yes, it has changed. I mean, when we first started out, there was no social media. So social media is, it's a real asset but at the same time, it can pull you down really fast and really quickly. So you have to think with lots of different hats. For me, I am of a generation that it's not second nature. But you look at the younger generation, it's just, you know, it's like at their fingertips. They know how to how to take an Instagram, make it a, a Twitter, put it on Facebook. Right. I mean, it's just... But it also it enables you to tell your story to a global brand so you can be one shop, which I am, in Elizabeth Street, and yet because of social media and because of being able to sell in that, in, in that sort of space, it makes you a global brand. So that is such an opportunity and an interesting place to be. I love that you say you're a shopkeeper because I think we are at this interesting time in the retail environment where people say, oh, you know, brick and mortar, they're, it's dead. And that's not the case. We still, the majority of shopping is done through brick and mortar mm. stores. How do you see that? 
So I love that question, by the way, because we are seeing, I mean, especially in the UK, we are seeing our high streets dying. Yeah. And it breaks my heart because what we have to realize is this is people's lives. This is not just businesses and department stores. This is people's lives. So you know, we have to start thinking with a different head. For us in Joe Loves, that's the only way I can go back to it. I looked at shops as like little theatres or cinemas, mm-hmm. places of entertainment. And instead of recruiting from an industry where people were coming from retail, I recruited from the entertainment industry. Really? So the head, ah. the head of education for us is somebody that used to be on the stage singing and dancing. He is the greatest, Adam is the greatest storyteller I have ever met. So sometimes it's looking at your bricks and mortar and saying, okay, what else can we do? How can we cause the consumer to want to sit in our space for longer than five minutes? What can we do? We entertain them. We talk to them. We, mm. we, we kind of play music or we, we, we entice them in all kinds of different ways. But it's no, it was never actually, let's be really honest, bricks and mortar was never just about the product. It's so much more retail. That's interesting. Um, and, and people do say it's got to be an experience, but you're right. You don't want them just, I mean, you want people to walk in. They want, you want them to want the product, but there's more to it, right? For me, there is. Absolutely. So yeah. in Elizabeth Street, we did a little tapas bar. So, and uh, everyone says, oh, Joe, you, you know, suddenly branched into food. You're into restaurant, right? Yeah, yeah, my my poor husband's face when I told him that was just (laughs) like, oh. No, it's a tapas bar for your nose. So we take two worlds, we collide them, and we create this third identity, and people sit at a little tapas bar, and they have three courses of fragrance for their nose. So it comes from cocktail shakers, velouté Mm -hmm. gums, paintbrushes, all kinds of different things. It's free of charge, so we don't charge for it, and we call it the first kiss. The moment where you kiss the consumer for the first time and you plant a memory and a story, and that is what's bringing people. That's, that is probably the, the biggest ingredient to us being successful. I want to talk a little bit more about the global economy because there is so many issues out there for, you know, here in the United States, we're watching the U.S.-China trade negotiation so closely. Um, We're watching whether or not we're going through kind of this global synchronized slowdown or synchronized global slowdown. Um, I know in the U.K., Brexit, Mm -hmm. and I know when you and I first met uh, last November, uh, that was certainly an issue that everybody was continuing to talk about. How does that impact you as a business owner, if at all? Um, it impacts every business owner, and anyone that says it doesn't is not. It it, it does in some yeah. way, whatever shape or form. I'm heartbroken, actually, by what's happening because <sighs> this is people's lives, mm. and a job. When someone gets a job, it affects them and their family. But you know what? That job affects their community in which they live, the city, and eventually the country. Right. And that's what we're seeing as a, as a slowdown in the economy. And it's tough. Every, you know, this Christmas, for instance, for a lot of shopkeepers, you saw things going on sale way before Christmas. Now, that really affects – how do you catch up with that? Right. How do you – people were sitting there waiting for, you know, the 70% discount to come in. And that really hurts retailers. You know, mm-hmm. that's why we're seeing shops being empty on the high street. What do we do with that? And – I don't want to talk us down because as an entrepreneur, what entrepreneurs are really great at is picking up the pieces and building something. So that's always where my mindset is. For us this Christmas, we worked three times harder for every pound that we made, but we did it. We did it. And it means that the next six months for us are much easier than some of the other retailers who are our neighbours who are really struggling. But 
there will always be a place in the market for retail. Brexit is not going to stop that, but it is making it really hard. And I tell you what it yeah. is, it's the uncertainty. Right. Nobody knows what's happening. I mean, <laughs> I'd like to think of myself as a pretty savvy person, but I don't know what's going to happen today, let right. alone tomorrow. So how am I supposed to build my business and invest in my business? Make decisions, right? Make decisions. Do I sign that lease? Do I employ those other two people? And for small little businesses, which is where obviously where my heart always lies, you know what? They don't have huge teams to advise them. They don't have the money to go and get lawyers. They need to know, okay, where are we going? Right. Is this safe for me to take this for the next year or the next six months? Because when you you sign a lease and you build a business it is a commitment to yourself to your community but to the people that you employ joe malone founder of joe loves joining us here in our bloomberg new york studios uh and you can catch the entire interview with joe just check out our weekend edition of bloomberg business week tonight at 6 p.m wall street time on bloomberg radio joe by the way recently was awarded a cbe it's a commander of the order of the british empire for her services to the british economy and to the Great Britain campaign. So in our weekly look at venture capital, Outdoorsy, it's the outdoor recreation marketplace. It's lined up a $50 million round of funding. Let's get into this with Colin Gardner, Chief Revenue Officer at Outdoorsy, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Colin, it's interesting what you guys are doing. It's really part of the sharing economy. It's kind of a mix between Airbnb and Uber and maybe some other companies, uh, all focused on the recreational market. Remind us a little bit about what your business mission is. Yeah, and Carol, nice to meet you up tomorrow. Um, Outdoorsy is the you know the world's largest and most trusted on-demand marketplace for recreational vehicles. You know, commonly known as RVs. But really, our mission is to get people in the great outdoors to disconnect to reconnect and really you know go on a, an adventure with their friends and family, uh, hit the open road, um, and kind of you know experience what you know in the U.S. the national parks and everything we have to offer. So there's Winnebago's, there's Airstreams, there are also, looks like SUVs or, you know, vans uh, that you can that you can rent out, correct? So there's kind of a variety. Yeah, we have uh, pretty much everything under the sun that you can think of that is movable accommodation. Um, you know, as you mentioned, from all the way from the large Class Cs, the giant ones you see on the road, all the way down to, you know, small little pen trailers, plus camper vans that are super popular right now. Uh, we have it all, um, and we're seeing more and more different flavors every day. And you're, of course, in the United States. You're in Canada. You're in Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom. Tell me a little bit about your user base. How many folks are actively pursuing your website, signing on? Tell me how it works. But And I'm also curious, tell me how many people who look at you ultimately become a customer? Yeah, so we have you know, millions of users uh, that come to the site um, looking to rent an RV. We have about you know, 30,000 plus uh, RVs listed on the platform, and we expect that to double over the next year. Um, but realistically, you know, we've uh, had about almost 100,000 bookings uh, in 2018. Uh, we expect to be more than double that number again next year. So just you know, massive growth for the company. Uh, you know, I joined over a year and a half ago, and I just couldn't imagine how fast we would grow. And from what I understand, over the last three years, you guys have seen, what, a 400% increase in bookings through the platform and more than a quarter of a billion dollars in transactions? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's you know, massive growth um, through the platform, in particular, you know, our peer-to-peer -peer segment. You know, people like you and me renting RVs from each other, that has just taken off, um, you know, very similar to you know, Airbnb, but 
really, you know, it's an asset that people own that, you know, they have sitting around for the majority of the year. They take it on their vacations for the two weeks out of the year. And the rest of the time it's sitting idle. And so a lot of these people, you know, we're providing them a, a way to, you know, get their RV out there and turn it into an income-bearing asset, mm-hmm. you know, really achieve financial freedom. So that's really what it's about for us. So tell me what um, you guys are going to do. Seen... Oh, I'm sorry. For, forgive me. But this, no, no, was... this this latest round of funding is Series C funding. You raised $50 million. So what are you guys going to do? What do you need to do with that money? Yeah, well, you know, Series C typically rounds are typically for growth, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, people are looking for companies with strong private market fit like ourselves. Uh, so what, really what we're using that capital for is growth, uh, both hiring, you know, tremendous talent and continuing the path we've been on there, expanding internationally, but also just growing awareness uh, for us, you know, continuing to get more and more people exposed to the brand um, and seeing that this is a you know, great alternative from traditional hotels and vacation rentals. Uh, so that's really our mission with the money, kind of pouring gasoline on the fire and really growing, you know, continuing to grow in 2019. I am also curious, and we were kicking this around in our newsroom. I was talking to our producer, Paul Brennan, and I just said, some of these um, RVs are huge. And I'm just curious, what kind of safety precautions or training does somebody go through before they're able to, I guess, rent one of these puppies out? Yeah, for sure. So we have a very rigorous, you know, trust and safety process in the the whole product. And we try to make everything as as seamless and automated as possible. But everyone has to pass a driver's license check, and there's certain you know, criteria you have to meet. You can't have a, you know, a, you know, a bad driving record. Um, but ultimately, you know, part of what we do is we also have owners who are required to, you know, constantly check their vehicles, tires, brakes, things like that. Um, but there's also what we call the key exchange, where the renter and the owner meet. It's a very unique experience that other, you know, other platforms and their accommodation types don't really have, where the owner walks the, the renter through their entire vehicle, how it works, things like that. And typically, they drive around the block a couple times with people, uh, especially for the larger ones that are. You know, probably people aren't used to driving smaller things like the sprinter vans and things like that, you know, handle much more similar to an SUV that people typically drive. Mm. Uh, but for the bigger ones, there's definitely a higher touch from the owner, uh, you know, showing them how to use the vehicle and really getting them comfortable so that, you know, when they go out, they're just enjoying their trip and not right. thinking about, am I driving this correctly? Right. Good, good point. Um, hey, Colin, just got about 30 seconds here. Just very quickly, what kind of bookings are you seeing? What does it tell you about the consumer and their outlook? Very quickly, if you could. Yeah, we, I mean, we're seeing a huge consumer trend from the millennial segment. You know, lots of people taking these things for weekend trips. Traditionally, they've been long road trip things, like seven days. But mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot more and more people seeing these as weekend getaways and a real alternative to the hotel. All right, Colin, going to leave it there. Thanks for the update. Colin Gardner, Chief Revenue Officer at Outdoorsy, joining us uh, on the phone. It sounds like a cell phone, I'm thinking, uh, from San Francisco. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Master. My co-host, Jason Kelly, is off on this Friday. And this is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Friday. We've just got about 12 minutes left in today's trading session. Joe Quinlan back, head of 
CIO Market Strategy over at Bank of America U.S. Trust. Joe joining us uh, on the phone in New York City. Joe, good to have you here. You know, it's interesting. We were talking earlier about how, again, we've had quite a rally off that Christmas Eve low, up four consecutive weeks here in stocks. I think we're up more than 6% or so uh, on the S&P 500. And yet, investors don't necessarily like this rally again. How do you see it? Is the bounce back justified in your view? Oh, Carol, I do think it's justified because I think on the downside, uh, you know, the Christmas Eve massacre was overdone as well. So, you know, we don't see any recession on the horizon. Earnings are coming in at single digits. I think you'll get to some type of off-ramp of the China-U.S. trade. The Fed's on hold. So I think this rally has legs. All right. That's interesting. How much more? Because we've had quite a bounce back uh, from that Christmas Eve low. Well, I think... I think investors, you know, we've kind of, if you stayed in the market, we've had a nice bounce, as you said, 6% plus. Um, we're not going to do that in February, March, as you know. It'll be a grind higher, wait and see. We'll have to see proof in the pudding that the China and the United States really have put these problems behind them. Uh, we'll, we'll, and then we've always, you know, we'll have Brexit. And I, and I do think, Carol, we're, we're going to have to deal with, like, slower growth overseas or even the United States. So that'll mm-hmm. be kind of a headwind. More, you know, inflationary expectations are rolling over. So there's a lot of, you know, there's some stiff headwinds out there yet that creates more of more a grinding out than what we've seen in the last couple of days. We always have headwinds. I mean, but we're up 13% from that Christmas Eve low on the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a pretty significant bounce back here. Does it not feel, especially if earnings are slowing, if the economy is slowing, and we'll get another gut check on China when they release a bunch of uh, data over the weekend, retail sales, IP, and fourth quarter GDP over the weekend, we'll get, you know, as much as they are transparent about that data, we'll get another idea of what's going on. But I mean, do you not think that the markets have kind of priced to the point where they better reflect the economic and market fundamentals that exist in reality out there? I mean, I, I do, Carol, to a, to a degree, because you know, growth is slowing around the world, but it's still it's still moving ahead. We're still going to get one one and a half percent growth out of the EU. Mm-hmm. China's still going to come in at say six percent. And I do what to think the markets are looking at. They're kind of looking through the next couple of months. They realize that the headline risk out of China is for slower growth, but you're going to start to you'll start to see the reflationary efforts of today. Uh, start to be priced into the markets now because you'll see the positive numbers come through in April, May. So I think the market's kind of looking through the weakness here in the next couple of quarters. And I'd also go back, you know, the, the downdraft at Christmas Eve was just overdone. So I mm-hmm. think some of the snapback it reflects the fact that we, we just overdid it on the downside uh, early or late last year. So in terms of the volatility that we're seeing, you guys have been doing some research on that as well. Um, here to stay, more of it? Oh, no, yeah, no, it's here to stay. I mean, you know, really, 2017 was an outlier. That, that, that was the exception, not the rule. Uh, 2018, it came back with a vengeance. And I just think, you know, these 1, 1%, 2% moves are back with us. Until we get some policy uh, certainty, you know, we haven't talked about the government shutdown, but, you know, this could be a stiffer headwind than most people realize, and maybe put the Fed uh, in a buy. You know, maybe, we're, maybe we'll be talking about, you know, cutting rates instead of raising rates. Well, I think people are already doing that, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, I, certainly, Carol. Like talking with clients, um, that's already on the table, and it's a quick. It's quickly how you know that that narrative is flipped. Um, so, yeah, there's there's always headwinds, as you said, you, of course. But some are more important than others, and some are stiffer than others. But I think underlying, we'll have to go deeper into the earnings seasons. But I think a lot of 
corporations, whether it's industrials, financials, healthcare, they ended the year on a pretty good note, and there's some pretty decent momentum heading into the first quarter, second quarter of this year. All right. So what do you do as an investor? What are you advising your clients? You're saying, okay, this is kind of an interesting environment. We've had quite a bounce back here. You're telling me, Joe, that the fundamentals actually look, you know, fairly decent out there. Where do I put some money? Well, barbell strategy, Carol, in the sense that we still are putting the war- money to work like some of these beaten up industrial stocks. We still like defense stock, the big large defense contractor, cybersecurity, healthcare, of course, for the long term longevity, but also in the emerging markets. I mean, if you've got you know, a Fed that's on hold, the ECB is on hold, oil prices have come down. China's reflating. Uh, I think the emerging markets, particularly like South Korea, Malaysia, Taiwan, they're, they're, I think they're going to outperform this year, at least for the near term, when it comes to the U.S. or the developed markets. Europe, we're avoiding. It's just very sloppy over there with Brexit, parliamentary mm-hmm. elections in May. Um, no leadership. They're rudderless. So not, we're not, no, no enthusiasm, as, nothing there right now. So where don't you want to be? Uh, not in Europe uh, right now. Um, I think you know we're going to be more kind of a more a cyclical bias, so you know less defensives, you know not utilities uh, in that sense. Um, shorter, we want to be shorter durations still on the fixed income uh, in that sense. So you know, and we you know we're we're warming up to, to the small caps as well. So I mean, I think you know this this vicious pullback we saw in the fourth quarter, particularly December create an opportunity across multiple asset classes to put some money to work. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we've been talking to a lot about the small cap bounce. I mean, it's up almost 17% mm-hmm. since Christmas Eve. Uh, and mind you, they were, you know, beaten up as well. But um, we're within the small cap space. I mean, you guys are buying, recommending investors buy into that space. Is there any particular sectors within it? Well, I mean, the sectors, I mean, you know, something like oil service, energy companies, biotech, uh, could, you know, there's some opportunities there on the pullback, healthcare. So it's really across the board. I mean, I don't get that specific into the subsectors. Um, but, but when you have the Fed, clearly, I, I think they're they're on hold. They're pausing. Maybe we won't, we won't get any rate, rate hikes this year. That, that creates a much more favorable backdrop, as you know, for the small caps. You sound pretty pretty optimistic, or, or at least positive, more so than negative here. When it looks when you're looking at the financial markets, Joe, what would change your mind at this point? The biggest is the U.S. consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. As you know, we're, we're, we're 70% of GDP. We're at full employment. Wages are rising across the, the employment spectrum. If the government shut down or is there any negativity in and around politics um, or whatever, that, that's the, you know, the consumer. They're, they're the engine. They're going to keep us growing at that 2.5%-plus growth to drive the earnings and the demand. And so that, I think that's key. And then also, you know, Washington in of itself. I mean, you know, we need infrastructure spending. We need more R&D. Um, you know, we, we got a lot of work to do. we got a federal budget deficit as well. So if those numbers kind of blow out or back up on the markets to the point where they don't like it, then we're going to have some, uh, some issues to deal with. All right. Going to leave it there. And as you mentioned, consumer sentiment. We did get a read from the University of Michigan today. Their consumer sentiment index plummeting in the month of January. Made a flurry of discouraging news about the government shutdown. Our thanks to Joe Quinlan, head of CIO Market Strategy over Bank of America U.S. Trust, joining us on the phone in New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.